It's the 31st of January in the year of our salvation, 2009. It's the Feast of St. John Bosco in both the Old and the New Roman calendar. And this is Father Z with another podcast. Since the last time we had a podcast, there have been some big things going on in the church. The, the big news, I think the biggest news that I, th I think, is the revocation of the excommunications that were incurred by those four bishops of the Priestly Society or Fraternity of St. Pius X back in 1988. They incurred an excommunication back then because they received Episcopal consecration without permission of the Holy See, and those excommunications have been lifted by our Holy Father Pope, Benedict XVI. And so we should talk about that for a little while. I also want to pry in to a hymn that is used in the Liturgy of the Hours, a hymn called O Lux Beata Trinitas. It's very ancient, and it'll lead us in very interesting directions. Let's get right to work. O Lux Beata Trinitas is one of two hymns that are designated for Second Vespers on Sundays of Ordinary Time according to the Liturgia Orarum, the Liturgy of the Hours. That is the post-conciliar way of praying the office, the universal prayer of the Church. Uh, o Lux Beata Trinitas is sung on the even weeks of the four-week cycle of the Psalter. And the other uh, hymn that is sung on the odd week, weeks is called Lucis Creator Optime. Now, the Old Lux Beata Trinitas mustn't be confused with another hymn, which starts similarly, uh, and it was in the Roman breviary for the Feast of the Holy Family, and so it was associated with the time of Epiphany, and that hymn was composed by Pope Leo the Thirteenth 
who died in 1903. Remember that the Feast of the Holy Family was a, a fairly recent feast. And Leo Thirteenth, if you didn't know, wrote some pretty spiffy Latin poetry. He even has little odes to some of his favorite things, like tobacco. Olux Beata Trinitas is very often attributed to St. Ambrose of Milan, the great uh, bishop who baptized St. Augustine. He died in 397. But I have to admit that I haven't been able to substantiate that because this hymn is not included in a critical uh, edition of Ambrose's works. Uh, I wasn't able to find it amongst the hymns that they have been able to authenticate. Uh, but it's very ancient, and it received uh, massive editing and reworking, just like most of the hymns did, ancient hymns, uh, did uh, back in the 17th century. One of the popes, Clement, thought that he could make everything a little more classical, and so it found its way into the Roman breviary as Yam Sol Recedit Ineus, which, of course, is one of the lines. Uh, everything was rearranged, and uh, that's a hymn in the Breviarium Romanum that is sung for Vespers in ferial offices on Saturdays and also on Trinity Sunday. Well, let's get at this hymn, and we can begin to pry it open a little bit uh, using a super-literal translation. Let's have the Latin, and then I'll give you uh, a slavishly accurate uh, translation. And, of course, this is just to kind of dig into it a little bit. O lux beata trinitas, et principalis unitas, jam sol recedit ineus in funde lumen cordibus. O light, blessed trinity, and the very first unity, now the fiery sun is receding, put light into our hearts. Te mane laudum carmine, te deprecemur vespere, Te nostra suplex gloria percunta laudet secula. In the morning we sing a song of praises, and in the evening we beseech you. May our supplicant glorification praise you all the ages. Deo patricit gloria, eusque soli filio, cum spiritu paraclito, et nunc et in perpetuum. Let there be glory to God the Father and to his only Son, with the Consoler Spirit both now and forevermore. Now there is a somewhat more a poetic, a smoother translation of this done by J. M. Neal, uh, who died in 1866. Now that, of course, was a time of uh, these wonderful, uh, both the composition of hymns in the English church and also um, the, the uh, translation of many traditional hymns that came from Latin. Uh, let's hear it. O Trinity of blessed light, O unity of sovereign might, as now the fiery sun departs, shed thou thy beams within our hearts. To thee our morning song of praise, to thee our evening prayer we raise. Thee may our glory evermore in lowly reverence adore. All laud to God the Father be, all praise, eternal Son, to Thee, all glory as is ever meet to God the Holy Paraclete.
Now, since this is such an ancient hymn, and uh, it's been uh, in use, of course, in prayer books for many, many centuries, there are, as you might predict, many different instrumental and choral settings of O Lux Beata Trinitas, some of which we will hear during the course of this podcast, but really in order to have a baseline, uh, let's just open up together our handy copies of the Liber Hymnarius. The Liber Hymnarius was published by the Monastery of Solem, a Benedictine monastery in France, which has been so uh, instrumental in putting together the uh, books for Gregorian chant for the Roman Rite, uh, both before and after the Council. Well, one of them, it's a part, it's actually a part of the volume you would call the Antiphonale Romanum, according to the Liturgia Orarum, and um, the Liber Hymnarius, cum invitatoriis et aliquibus responsoriis. It was published in 1983, and it's extremely useful for your own singing of the office with the new Liturgy of the Hours. So opening up, we find uh, our section in Ordinary Time, and we find that the hymns are here arranged uh, first for weeks 1 and 3, and then for weeks 2 and 4. And in on Sunday, for weeks 2 and 4, page 215, if you're following along, you find at the bottom of the page our hymn for Second Vespers. And unfortunately, you're going to have to hear me sing it because I wasn't able to find just a regular Gregorian Chan version. O Lux Beata Trinitas, et Principalis Unitas, Iam sorrece dirinieus, infunde lumen cordibus. Te mani laudum carmine, te deprecemur vespere, te nostra suplex gloria, percunta laudet secula. Christum rogamus et patrem, Christi patrisque spiritum, unum potens per omnia, fove precantes trinitas. Now that was the version in the Liber Hymnarius, and I can just imagine that after having heard me, uh, you know, kind of uh, croak that out, some of you might be saying, but Father, but Father, that last verse didn't sound like the one you translated above, what gives? Well, you are right if you caught that. 
because it isn't. That final verse of the three, that doxology, is indeed uh, a different text. And I suspect that what happened is that uh, there's a variation here because the redactors of the liturgy after the council had strong cases of tinkeritis. You know, they had to tinker with just about everything. Uh, but what they did insert there, however, is a, a very ancient doxology used in some of the some other hymns, uh, such as the Deus Creator Omnium of Ambrose. Remember that uh, the O Lux Beata Trinitas is sometimes attributed to Ambrose. You can also find it in Eterna Lux Divinitas, which you know has kind of a similar sound to it, doesn't it? But uh, this last part is a, a doxology which really stresses the Trinity. The last word is the, the Trinity in the version that we hear in the Liber Hymnarius and that we find in the Liturgy Orarum. And remember that this hymn was associated with the Feast of the Trinity. So uh, what does this text say, this doxology that we have, uh, that we're actually singing in the in the Liturgia Orarum and that we found in the Liber Hymnarius. Well, the Latin is Christum rogamus et patrem, Christi patrisque spiritum, unum potens per omnia fove precantes trinitas, which literally is, let us invoke Christ and the Father and the Spirit of Christ and the Father. O Trinity, sole power in all things, assist us who are praying. Now, you know, I mentioned, of course, a couple times that this hymn is attributed to Ambrose. And these Trinitarian doxologies that we have at the end of most of our Roman hymns uh, in the office, both before and after the Council, uh, probably came into Roman hymnology uh, in, that we have in the office, probably through the influence of Ambrose. I mean, he wrote these sort of things for his own hymns. We have about 20 or so of his hymns that are authenticated, and of course many that are attributed to him, like our old Lux Beata Trinitas that we hear today. And uh, But, you know, just thinking about it, uh, thinking about the way this is all fitting together and, you know, how uh, these little variations make us, you know, ponder, where does this come from? How does it work when we hear these hymns sung? What we're doing is we're really connecting ourselves in a very profound way with the most ancient of our Christian forebears, our ancestors in the faith. If my memory serves, um, apart from the hymns that we identify in the letters of the New Testament in Paul's letters, for example, one of our very oldest hymns uh, comes from a third century uh, fragment of papyrus found in a place called Oxyrhynchus in Egypt. Uh, I think it was a garbage dump or something like that. They found all these papyrus fragments and they were able to uh, learn many many things about the ancient community uh, of course it's written in Greek but they found a fragment of papyrus praising the Holy Trinity in a hymn which is really interesting if you stop to consider this is the third century we're talking about um, and this little fragment written in Greek says we sing a song of praise to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit 
Oh, remember that the consubstantiality, the complete divinity of the Holy Spirit wasn't affirmed until, I think it was Constantinople, wasn't it, in 382? So that's the 4th century, and already in the 3rd century, the faith of the people is being poured out in honor of the Holy Spirit in a trinity, in a Trinitarian Godhead. So it's really interesting uh, when we dig back and we find out how people express their faith in hymns. You know, in the Latin West, uh, we had uh, uh, Trinitarian um, theology expressed, for example, in the hymns of Hilary of Poitiers. Uh, he worked with great doctrinal effect through hymns uh, against the Arians. And uh, he died in 366. And he had spent some time in exile in the East. You know, of course, so he had, he had influences of the Greek East in his writings. Ambrose, too, of Milan, the great bishop of Milan, he had spent time in the East. He knew Greek quite well. And uh, he wrote these hymns uh, for a very, uh, a very important reason. He wrote the hymns to strengthen his flock during a terrible crisis in Milan. You might remember the story, you might remember how the Arian Empress Justinian and the Emperor Valentinian, they were trying to force Ambrose and the Catholic Christian community to turn over a basilica to them for their worship. Now remember Arians, you know, they denied the full divinity of the sun. They thought that the sun was really just the greatest of all creatures and that there was a time when he was not. He was created great, but created. Of course, that's um, not a Catholic doctrine. And so there was a bitter, bitter struggle going on everywhere between the Arians and between the, it, with, with the Catholics, especially because sometimes they came to ascendancy. You know, here we have the Empress and the Emperor uh, trying to force them to turn over a basilica. And the Catholics, with Ambrose, they shut themselves inside the basilica that they knew was going to be see, uh, you know, seized. And they waited for the soldiers who were outside to you know, crash in and kill them all. And Augustine describes this in his Confessions. He talks about the power that the hymns that Ambrose wrote had on him the great effect as they sang these things to strengthen themselves in this moment this terrible moment of crisis gathered with their bishop arrayed against the forces of the heretics uh, with deadly power outside uh, augustine uh, describes how the hymns that were sung in the basilicas in milan entered into his heart and made him weep he talks about how the tears were good for him. Remember that Augustine, especially with the influence of Ambrose, had an, had an intellectual conversion, you know, when he began to understand how there could possibly be an immaterial God and how uh, to take him away from his, you know, Manichaean roots. And uh, uh, the eloquence of Ambrose helped, you know, persuade Augustine that maybe the language of Scripture wasn't so barbaric after all. And also, uh, these hymns and these other moments helped Augustine through with an affective, not just an intellectual conversion. It's something that moved his heart. 
Uh, Augustine, as a matter of fact, depended on this effective dimension of Ambrose Hinn. Uh, at another time, uh, when his mother died on his way back to Africa with his mother, after having been baptized, his mother and his family, you know, his brother's friends, they were heading back to Africa to found a, a new monastic style of community in, uh, in Hippo and Tagaste, especially Tagaste. Uh, it was eventually, uh, eventually Ambrose got to Hippo. But when uh, they were blockaded there, uh, Monica, his mother, caught a fever and she died. And it was Augustine had a terrible time with it. He, he couldn't weep. And eventually, uh, one of the things that he did is he, he sang a hymn of Ambrose, and then he wept. So these hymns of Ambrose are important. They've had many important influences in the history of the church, and it was Ambrose who gave us a very standard format for uh, subsequent Latin hymns, uh, the ones that we sing in the Liturgy of the Hours today, in the Breviarium Romanum. He gave us the form of uh, iambic tentrameter in four lines of eight syllables and four feet of iamb iams. In any event, I'm just kind of rambling along here. But this is what happens when you pry open a hymn called O Lux Beata Trinitas, sung at Second Vespers on Sundays in the new office every other week. And during uh, the second and the fourth weeks of the cycle of the Psalter. Now, a few days ago, we learned that uh, our Holy Father Pope Benedict had uh, lifted or commanded that the excommunications of the four bishops of the priestly uh, society or fraternity of St. Pius X uh, should be lifted. Remember, now these are the four bishops that were consecrated by the late Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, you know, the founder of the so-called SSPX. I don't have a fast way to put it, rather than saying always, you know, priestly society of St. Pius X, let's just call them SSBX, uh, that they had incurred back in 1988, over 20 years ago, because they received uh, Episcopal consecration without the permission of the Holy See. And according to the Code of Canon Law, before any bishop can consecrate other bishops, they have to have permission of the Pope. Well, they went ahead and they did it without it, and in doing so, they incurred an excommunication that was reserved from the whole, to the Holy See to be lifted. Well, uh, the, these excommunications have, in fact, been remitted. And there was a decree that came from the Congregation of Bishops at the command of our Holy Father to make that clear to the whole world that these four men are not considered excommunicated 
by the Catholic Church. And this is an absolutely wonderful thing. It was something that had to happen. It was a, a bone of contention, a bone that had stuck really in the throats of the members of the SSPX, that is the bishops and the priests, and also the followers of the society for many, many years. Some people had thought that this was unjust. Many thought even that it wasn't even valid or whatever. Well, see, that's all removed now, whether it was valid or not, or whether it was just or the right thing to do. It has been taken away. And the Holy Father, a few days after this came out into the public during one of his Wednesday general audiences, made the statement that because of his specific role in the church of promoting unity and fostering unity, and because he had heard from the four bishops about the suffering that they were enduring because of the excommunications, he, with fatherly concern, decided to lift them, especially also so that they could uh, together open up a path toward uh, more serious and more concrete talks that could lead to formal unity sometime down the line because the SSPX remains uh, outside of formal unity. You see, there are many ways in which uh, these people who are you know, Catholics, very traditional Catholics, they just want to live a good Catholic life according to the teaching uh, of you know tradition in the church as tradition with a with a big T not the not the little T tradition but the big T tradition they want to have solid liturgy and solid doctrine solid catechesis solid uh, practical life as Catholics according to our long Catholic tradition and they think that that many different dimensions of the life of the church and her teaching have been compromised by a theology which is overly centered on man or anthropocentric rather than God-centric and there, the various ideas raised in the documents of the Second Vatican Council uh, that they think reveal a uh, too great an influence of uh, perhaps tendencies in modern theology that are in conflict with the Catholic faith as it has been taught, the regular fide as it has been preserved in the church through you know, tradition and the magisterium for many, many centuries. So in any event, this was a necessary first step, the lifting of these excommunications uh, on a path toward greater unity. But there are still you know, quite a few misconceptions um, about this. Uh, the lifting of the excommunications, and I got a great deal of email, and I had a lot of phone calls from people asking me um, all sorts of questions. And so I wrote a little piece for the blog, and it's been picked up by uh, several publications, I think the Catholic Herald in England, and perhaps our Sunday Visitor, and uh, maybe some other Catholic publications have picked this up as well. Well, I wrote a, some, a, a, br a very brief piece about some misconceptions about what the lifting of the SSPX bishops' excommunications really means. Now, in writing about these misconceptions and you know doing a little Q and A about it, uh, I am in no way trying to you know cast aspersions on the lifting of this thing or whatever. Because you know, whenever you talk about these things, you know, people there are a certain group of people who really 
just kind of you know freak out and they think that if you're you know trying to make clarifications that they really aren't yet in like full communion with the church full manifest visible unity in a formal way with with the holy father and with rome well they think you're doing something terrible you're trying to throw a spanner into the works or something like that well i'm not doing that because whatever happens uh, in the future has to happen uh, with a little bit of clarity so let's get rid of some of the misconceptions here. Now one of the questions that I would get uh, during these last few days is an obvious question is is the SSPX now legitimate? Well no not not yet not really not yet in a juridical sense no they still don't have the approval of the Pope or of a diocesan bishop and so it's still a separated group um, it's it's not uh, in in a state of schism or schism as some people say schism comes from a Greek word meaning to like to cut off to separate off break off um, the Holy See is not talking about schism these days um, which was a, would be a far far more uh, serious issue but th this doesn't mean uh, the lifting of the excommunications doesn't mean that that Rome and the SSPX see eye to eye and they are in formal unity with each other. So that hasn't changed. The lifting of the excommunications hasn't changed the status of the society. And uh, another question that I would get is, is it okay for the SSPX bishops, these four men, uh, to ordain priests now? And the answer is no, it's not. Uh, the bishops of the SSPX, they are validly consecrated bishops, they're really bishops, but they were illicitly consecrated. That, that hasn't changed. They still aren't reconciled with Rome. They are still suspended a divinis, as we say. That means that they don't have any permission to exercise ministry in the church. And so they validly ordain priests, but they don't licitly ordain them. They don't have any authority to do so. They, every bishop who ordains a priest has to have permission from proper authority. They can't just take it on themselves to ordain anyone, even to the you know, priesthood. Uh, for example, I was ordained uh, back in 1991 by John Paul II, the Pope the Bishop of Rome, the Vicar of Christ, the Servant of the Servants of God. And he has full authority in the whole church over all these matters. And yet, when I was ordained by him, before I could be ordained, my own diocesan bishop had to write a letter to the Pope, a demissorial letter it's called, um, saying that yes, you know this this can take place. Well, in this case, he doesn't really like give the Pope permission, but uh, you know he say says that yes, uh, this man can be ordained by you. But if a bishop were to write to a bishop of another diocese, say for example, a bishop comes to a seminary and he's going to ordain a whole bunch of priests at the same time, including priests that are not of his own diocese. Well, whoever is in charge in that place has to give this bishop permission through demissorial letters to ordain. In other words, the whole point is, is that bishops have to have permission to ordain, even priests. And the SSPX bishops don't have permission to do that, so they validly ordain, but they don't licitly ordain. 
Now another question, uh, very dear to people's hearts, uh, concerns the chapels of the SSPX. So they would ask questions like, are the chapels of the SSPX okay now, or is it okay to go to these chapels for Mass? Well, are the chapels okay? Well, no, they're not. Not yet. Not in a juridical or a legal sense because they don't have the authority to establish these things. Local bishops do, and, or, you know, I suppose the religious superiors of, of some groups, you know, perhaps like Opus Dei, but, you know, they'd always have to work it out with a local bishop anyway. Uh, so these chapels are still not reconciled by this move of lifting the excommunications. They aren't suddenly legitimate because of that. Now, this doesn't call into question, you know, the good... Uh, spiritual things that can happen in those communities. The point is is that in a juridical sense they are still not okay. And is it okay to go to them? That's of course the next question. Well, yes and no. It's not, still not really okay to go to a chapel of the SSPX if you are doing so because you have like some kind of contempt for the Pope or contempt for the Holy See, or, or something like that. But if you are deeply attached to the older form of Mass, and you can't get it anywhere else, for example, and yeah, that, you know, even since Summorum Pontificum, you know, it's still <laughs> hard for a lot of people to find older form of Mass, you know, in, in, a, in a chapel of a diocese, or a church, uh, that's, you know, one of the, the churches of the diocese that's in union with a bishop. But Still, I mean, you can, the, the Holy See has even said uh, through the Pontifical Commission Ecclesia Dei, which has competence in these matters, that yes, you can, if you're deeply attached to the older form of Mass, and it would be, you know, hard for you to go without it, yes, you can attend these Masses, even at chapels of the SSPX, you can do so out of your, you know, deep devotion for it. Now, as a matter of fact, the 1983 Code of Canon Law says that you fulfill your Sunday or Holy Day Mass obligations when you attend uh, a Mass in one of these chapels, because in those chapels the priests of the SSPX are saying Mass with a Catholic rite. And the Code of Canon Law says that you fulfill your obligation if you attend a Mass on the day itself or in the evening before in uh, you know, a Mass celebrated in a Catholic rite. So that's what they're doing, and you can fulfill your Mass obligation there. The only difficulty, the, the reason why I said yes and no, uh, the no part comes from, you know, the fact remains that these are still chapels that are separated from unity with a local bishop. And this is my opinion, you know, here, but I don't think it's a good idea um, to spend, a, you know, a lot of time at a place that is you know, very clearly not yet in unity with the Holy See. Now, in years past, sometimes you would go to these chapels and you could hear some pretty strong rhetoric against the, you know, the church, against the, the Holy Father, against, um, uh, you know, bishops or, you know, the Vatican or whatever. I mean, the rhetoric, you know, would sometimes get ratcheted up pretty high. And I think that, uh, you know, long exposure to that could undermine a person's sense of unity with the Holy Father, or with the local church, with the local bishop. 
And uh, so, you know, I think it really has to depend from chapel to chapel and from priest to priest. I think now some of that really sharp uh, rhetoric is, you know, it's it's calming down. People are calming down a little bit. And so, you know, I would I would say to a person who wants to go to a chapel like that, especially because they want the old mass, well, yes, go. But, you know, be very careful and, you know, discern carefully what it is that you're hearing there. If you're hearing something that you know you know, just over time is probably going to hurt your unity uh, with uh, Rome or with the local bishop, then be very careful what you do there. Can you receive communion at an SSPX Mass? Well, yes and no. Uh, I would say yes if you otherwise would have to go without the Eucharist for a long time because you were morally or physically impeded from receiving it uh, in a you know a chapel that is licit or a church that is you know a diocesan church or you know staffed by an order that's in union with Rome and you know has the bishop's approval and all of that, um, yeah. It, it, then in that case, you know certainly you can you can go to Holy Communion for these things. But you know if you're doing it because well these people and these people alone only they are true Catholics and the Pope and all these people are apostates and so forth. Well then I would say, you know, you're really heading down the wrong road. Now, sometimes people will counter, you know, at the chapel of the SPX, we have a beautiful mass. At the regular parish over there, they are doing wacko things. There are liturgical abuses and weird preaching and terrible catechism, and I fear to take my children there, and every time I go there, I know it feels like it's another religion. And these people over here are just, they're Catholic. They're Catholic. Or they'll say, you know, these the Bishop X or Bishop Y or Bishop, you know, Z, they're... I mean, you know, they say crazy things, and they don't uphold the church's teaching or defend it in public. You know, if there are politicians out there, they don't seem to care. And yet, these people over here, they really sound like Catholics. I mean, I know, folks, that there is a terrible tension here, and this isn't a really good situation. And now we have a situation, too, where... Uh, there are followers of the SSPX who have grown up in these chapels and they've been formed by their parents and by the priests of the of the SSPX for years. They've never known unity with Rome and or the local bishop. And so uh, there, there are very difficult questions involved with all of these things and I think we have to exercise just tremendous patience. And I think the key to it all is that uh, people of goodwill are able to disagree on points which aren't really super clear or laid out in crystal clear clarity in formulas, for example. You know, the, there are the, the, the documents of the Second Vatican Council raise all sorts of interesting goals, all sorts of, you know, ideals like ecumenism, and they talk about, you know, religious liberty and how the church is supposed to, you know, function or interface or communicate with and within the modern world. But there is precious little that's concrete that comes out of that, and when you read it, read what the documents say in a certain way, you know, you can kind of scratch your head and wonder, wow, does, you know, is this really in keeping with things that Holy Church has said 
in authoritative documents or sources or things that popes have te- taught or you know that we we've known as Catholics throughout the centuries is it really in keeping with that I mean is this as really Catholic well I think that people of goodwill have to approach those documents and remember that well yeah you know they might there might be some ambiguity there might be things that make you really scratch your head but we have to do our very best to try to read them uh, in a Catholic light and try to submit them to a good interpretation if we possibly can and at that point people of goodwill are able to disagree over how to approach the documents, how to approach those ideals. You can have different different approaches without necessarily having to break communion with each other. For example, we're not talking about whether or not there are three persons in one God or two natures in Christ, or whether there are seven sacraments, or whether the the, the Blessed Virgin Mary was uh, was you know a virgin before, during, and after the birth of our Savior. Or whether she was assumed, you know, body bodily into heaven, or, you know, who gets to approve uh, um, the, the the canon of scripture, or or any of these other things that that we really, ha- you know, cannot fudge on in any way as Catholics. There are a lot of things that are unclear, and people of goodwill have to be able to get together, put their heads together, sit down at a table in great humility, and talk about these things. Now the you know, so the clearing of the excommunications was a necessary step so that the the steps to come will be approached more easily. They won't have this, you know, bone caught in their throats. And the representatives of the SSPX that come together with the representatives of the Holy See, or however they're going to do it, they both have to approach themselves with great humility. Now, for example, on the side of the Holy See, I think that you know whoever is chosen to do this, you know, has to come into this talk uh, very firmly, very consciously, very openly, and clearly, setting aside any idea that some kind of spirit of Vatican II is a, uh, you know, raised to the to the level of a super dogma that no one can ever criticize any document of Vatican II or you're just some rigid person trying to you know block the church's progress or you you hate the church or something like that because you question something that came out of the documents of Vatican II as you know there are a lot of people out there folks who think that the church's teaching or the church's history began in 1965 or at least when the you know the council started you know some years earlier and that is not so this is just one council in a whole long chain of councils and it was supposed to be a pastoral council instead of a you know dogmatic council and then there's a whole mess about that but let's not turn uh, everything that came out of the council or some imagined fruits of the council you know which we can debate about into some kind of super dogma that you can never question that has to happen on the one side on the other side i think that the the members of the sxpx come in they have to come in with great humility and not with a chip on their shoulder just like the other ones don't you know can't have a chip on their shoulder but maybe not come in with the idea that we are the sole saviors of the church. We're the only ones who are truly Catholic. There has to be an exchange on on both sides in order to understand what the issues are and then what the the 
basic points are of agreement so that there can be a manifest union hammered out through some juridical process later on, some canonical structure you know put together so that we can uh, so that we can be in manifest and uh, formal unity. That's what we're really looking for down the way. And another way to approach us, especially from our point of view, is not only that in our dealings with each other, and you know, uh, of course, a lot of us are pretty, you know, pretty worked up about this right now. Just to deal with each other with real humility and real patience, remembering that the joy, remember the joy of the event of the lifting of the excommunications, and the greater joy that this could lead to down the line, so long as we keep our heads cool, talk to each other with great respect, uh, and pray over this thing, and pray over the, the, um, uh, the the talks that will have to take place and pray for the people who will be involved to pray for the Holy Father that he will remain good and healthy and strong and courageous in the face of all of the opposition that is going to be stirred up about this especially from the people who tend to dissent from the church's teachings who are, or who have turned the council into some super dogma or the people who you know, think that they are the sole saviors of the church, you know, who, who are never happy. You know, there's a type of person who's happy only when he's unhappy, right? And unfortunately, a lot of them seem to be involved with uh, a lot of zeal in this issue. We should pray and fast and give alms, perform works of charity, uh, pray to the guardian angels of all the people involved, the leadership of the SSPX, the the, the people who are in the the Pontifical Commission Ecclesia Dei, the Holy Father, all of the people who will be involved. Because this is an opportunity to see something truly magnificent, folks. The real healing of a wound of unity in the church. And also, you know, then the greater uh, and wider integration of all these people who are deeply committed Catholics, who will bring with them all of the wonderful influences that can come from their uh, from their fervent belief in our Catholic faith and their earnest you know practices of all the good devotions that have come out of our tradition these are people who can help heal some of the rupture and continuity in the church and we should do everything that we can to embrace them and to foster their integration back into the church in a formal way Well, I think with that, I'm going to wrap this up. Lest this get too long, I was going to include uh, one of the Don Camillo stories, or two of them perhaps, but I think I'll have to do that next time. Uh, otherwise, you know, these, these projects get a little too involved, a little too long, and then I get, you know, frustrated or discouraged in making them because they take up so much time. And uh, this way, if I keep them short, maybe I can do them a little bit more often. I'm also going to be... Uh, you know, kind of thinking about new formats for these uh, podcasts, uh, maybe even integrating video. I'm not quite sure how to do all these things yet, and I'm playing around with a lot of things so that I can learn. Perhaps your feedback will help. You can always leave me a voicemail. I revived my voicemail phone numbers, and uh, you can uh, you can reach me through uh, Skype. 
if you use Skype, that wonderful voiceover IP uh, service. Um, the Skype address is WDTPRS, it's just like the blog, Whiskey Delta Tango Papa Romeo Sierra. Of course, the blog address is uh, WDTPRS.com. A little easier way to get there is to go to FatherZOnline.com, F-A-T-H-E-R-Z-Online.com. But uh, you can leave me voicemail if you're using Skype at WDTPRS. That's the address. But if you're inclined to use a telephone in the United States, you can always dial 651-314-4554. That's area code 651-314-4554. And if you're in the UK, you can call... 020, it's the London prefix, 020-8123-1545. That's 20-8123-1545. Now, I don't answer those uh, calls, uh, but you'll go right into the voicemail, and I do listen to them. I don't always, you know, put out a note on the blog that so-and-so called or said this, and I won't always use every one of them in the podcasts, but I do listen. So uh, let's hear a couple of voicemails right now, just to uh, just to kind of get things back uh, back rolling again. Hey Father, it's Cray here. I'm phoning you from uh, a very cold and uh, almost snowy Chicago and uh, just wanted to say thanks very much for your blog. I really enjoy uh, reading it and uh, I think you've got some fantastic stuff on there. So keep it up, Father, and thanks very much. Bye. Hello, Father Z. Uh, my name is Jason and I'm calling from the West Coast and I just wanted to call and thank you for your blog and the information that you provide. I uh, have to say uh, that it is greatly appreciated by almost everyone that I know in the Latin Mass uh, movement and appreciate so much your good counsel and good information that is provided on a regular basis. Thank you so much and God bless. Hi, Father Z. This is David Ferraro from Walla Walla, Washington. I want to tell you how much I appreciate uh, your your column, your blogs, and everything, all the information keeping us up to date, and your promotion of the uh, 1962 missile. Uh, I'm a Catholic of 54 years, and I enjoy I enjoy the mass in the ordinary form and the extraordinary form. Also, they're both be- beautiful expressions of worship. Uh, hopefully, in the ordinary form, things will get back a little bit more to normal as. Uh, the present Holy Father, God bless him, has said, you know, there needs to be more, more uh, sacredness, and need to reform of the reform. Anyway, thank you for your work. I know you don't return calls, so God bless you. Bye bye. With that last one, let's uh, close this down. Uh, this is Father Z, folks. Father Zed, Father John Zolsdorf. I hope you'll pray for me, as I pray for you.